So we know that if you're sleeping for fewer than seven or eight hours a night, and this is mostly in pediatric populations, but even when we look across other populations, we see that injury risk can be quite high. So the literature is about 1.7 or two times or so greater for people that don't get enough sleep at night. So injury risk is tied to lack of sleep. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Jane Thornton to discuss female athlete health. We dive into understanding the health considerations for female athletes across the lifespan, how to recognise various presentations of health challenges and conditions in female athletes, and we also discuss some of the research gaps in female athlete health. Dr. Jane Thornton is a sport and exercise medicine physician and clinician scientist specialising in long-term athlete health, female athlete health, and physical activity in the prevention and treatment of chronic diseases. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine with cross appointments in the Department of Epidemiology, Biostatistics and the Department of Kinesiology. She is a member of the Board of Directors of the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine and editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Dr Thornton represented Canada for over a decade in the sport of elite rowing, becoming both a world champion in 2006 and Olympian in 2008. She now treats athletes and active individuals of all ages and abilities and advocates for movement as medicine. This is a great episode that will really get you thinking about how you can better consider aspects that influence female athletes. So let's dive straight in. I'm James Armstrong and this is Physio Explained. So welcome to the podcast, Jane. It's fantastic to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's an honour. Brilliant. And we've got a, a really great topic today. We're going to be talking all about the female athlete and health across the lifespan. And it's a, a big subject that we're going to break down into three main areas today. And I think it's right that we dive straight in and make the most of the time that we've got with you today. So first of all, Jane, let's talk about the health considerations due to hormonal levels and fluctuations. What might we be considering within that area? Thank you for the question. It's reasonable to consider that there's a lot of factors that go into unique health considerations for female athletes and active women. And we can break it down into a few areas and one of them being hormonal fluctuations and levels. And this can really carry over across one menstrual cycle if we're thinking about adult women, or it can think about it broadly over the course of a lifespan. And it's one of those things that researchers have found historically very hard to measure because it's one aspect that does fluctuate. So in terms of looking at outcomes or illnesses or injuries, some have shied away from looking at women specifically. And one of the big reasons why they're historically underrepresented in sport and exercise medicine research and physiotherapy as well is really the inability to potentially control for hormonal fluctuations and levels. But even still, we have a sense of things that we can consider across the various hormonal levels and fluctuations that can at least influence how we care for athletes and active women, and just even taking those things into consideration where we might not have had before. So one of the examples are thinking about women seem to have a higher incidence of inflammatory conditions across the lifespan. So things like rheumatoid arthritis, and even across asthma, allergy, some aspects of cardiovascular disease, and things like migraine, metabolic conditions, and so on. So their risk factors and risks are a little bit different than men. And so that plays into how we counsel on physical activity and also return to sport. 
And one example would be just even if we take the example of migraine, for example, just even looking over menstrual cycles, when hormones fluctuate, so when estrogen levels rise and also progesterone levels rise, there can be an increased incidence of migraine experienced at that part of the menstrual cycle. So we can think of it divided in terms of micro phases or bigger ones, but essentially those levels as they fluctuate can influence how women are experiencing their migraines and also the severity but it can also change over things like pregnancy. So that can sometimes get better or worse during menopause. It's just one example, and I'm happy to dive into a few more. But in essence, thinking about pre-existing conditions can also have a part to play in how we treat people throughout their injury and illness narrative. Okay. And are there any other things in terms of that fluctuation of hormones, say, for instance, within a menstrual cycle and how we might consider those elements when treating particularly safe sort of female athletes? One of the things that's come out of late is just trying to even understand if we need to adapt our training and the training advice for physiology, for example, or does exercise performance change over the menstrual cycle and what are then our approach for injuries? maybe injury risk can be higher across menstrual cycles or things like that. Historically, they've looked at things like ACL injury, so anterior cruciate ligament injury risk. Does it change over the menstrual cycle? And right now, at least, with fairly good certainty, we can say we just don't know, which means that we doesn't seem to be big changes across the menstrual cycle. So there may be individual adaptations, and that's a huge hot topic in terms of female athlete and women's health in general research. There's been two phenomenal systematic reviews that have looked at this, uh, Christy Elliott-Sale and her team, essentially looking at exercise performance across the menstrual cycle. And Granted, they could only find a systematic review, could generally only find recreational or relatively untrained individuals, not necessarily elite female athletes. But looking across the menstrual cycle, exercise performance doesn't change too much. It may marginally change in some people in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. So that kind of that second half of the menstrual cycle prior to menstruation. And then the same thing when they look at oral contraceptive pills as well. So having uh, looked to see whether or not those affect exercise performance as well. And the jury's still out. There may be a slightly lower performance for those that are on oral contraceptive pills. But again, more research needs to be done. And that's probably the overarching sentiment to all of this is that we really need to get more data points to understand individual variability and also looking at different levels of performance. And leading on from that, I suppose it's going to tie nicely into our our next section as well. But in terms of injury risk, does that change with, and I suppose, hormonal fluctuations, but also we can probably nicely segue into our next bit in terms of the lifespan? Right. Yeah. And I think the answer to that right now is probably it depends. And the reason I say that is because Again, it doesn't seem to be that ACL injury risk, for example, fluctuates. There are studies that are starting to come out suggesting associations, but we really can't say with any certainty that those changes with so ligament or those types of injuries change with hormonal variations. I'll give you one that kind of overlaps with both, and that's the thought about ligament injury and tendon injury during pregnancy and postpartum when a hormone called relaxin is at its highest levels. And that tends to, just as the name suggests, essentially help people become more mobile and flexible from an evolutionary perspective to allow the pelvis to expand in order to carry a fetus and deliver a baby, essentially, that those ligaments are essentially looser. And the thought was for quite some time, although we're 
still looking at associations about whether or not those increased hormonal levels actually also could translate to higher injury risk if people are potentially hypermobile or more mobile than they're used to. But you can also think about injury risk as maybe not a direct association, but something more indirect. So again, due to hormonal variations, but also across the lifespan, we can look at something like sleep. So we know that sleep, if you're sleeping for fewer than seven or eight hours a night, and this is mostly in pediatric populations, but even when we look across other populations, we see that injury risk can be quite high. So the literature is about 1.7 or two times or so greater for people that don't get enough sleep at night. So injury risk is tied to lack of sleep. But lack of sleep is also tied to hormonal levels and transitional phases across the lifespan for women. For example, looking through reproductive cycles, so pregnancy, sleep can get disrupted, certainly premenopause or perimenopausal women who will have fluctuations or disruptions in sleep patterns as it relates to hormonal levels? And does that actually translate to increased injury risk? So again, it comes back to potential indirect associations on either pre-existing conditions or metabolic conditions, or even things that we think about like relative energy deficiency in sport, for example, when hormone levels are too low, when we don't have estrogen and progesterone on board, and we know that increases injury risk as well as lowering bone mineral density. So It's a big question. And I think where we have to start looking at it a little bit more is to determine again, is it a direct association or indirect and start to tease those out a little bit further. This podcast is sponsored by Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that helps you save time. It's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. With Clinico, you'll get everything you need to run a successful physio practice like online booking tools, treatment notes, digital forms, customizable body charts, and much more. Physio Network members get 90 days for free now. Signing up takes one minute. Just visit clinico.com forward slash physio dash network. So it's looking a bit more broadly. And also, I suppose, like most things, we're looking at the athlete or the person in front of us as an individual and how, for instance, they're affected by different stages of their menstrual cycle or they're affected by their stages of their lifespan as well. Exactly. That's where our advice can change somewhat. So when I think about things like the female athlete across the lifespan, we tend to group it in phases, although they're somewhat arbitrary, but childhood and adulthood, of course, where we think more about when menstrual cycles are established and how that can affect performance or injury risk and menopause and beyond or even postpartum as being a different stage as well. So thinking across the lifespan as well, in childhood, we depend a lot on making sure that the children and adolescents are getting adequate nutrition, that they're establishing good bone mineral density, that they're establishing strength. Of course, they're growing all the time and we're trying to make sure that that's happening. But something even to consider for female athletes and women or young girls, I should say, and young adults are that we really want to be able to promote sport and make sure that they're having those chances. We know that girls that are involved in sports have higher self-esteem, higher self-efficacy, higher self-confidence, and they tend to be protected against negative health outcomes later on in life. And it also spurs on people to become more healthy during that time. 
I'm not sure about many of our listeners could relate to this, but I know in Canada, we've seen a huge plummet in the numbers of girls that are involved in sport during the pandemic, for example. And so mm-hmm. understanding that we've lost almost 350,000 girls who have stopped participating in sport during COVID. Now, a lot of them are coming back, but more than nine in 10 have halted participation in sport during COVID. And we found that there's a quite a high number of people that don't want to come back post-pandemic. So those numbers for us are worrying in yeah. Canada, just because we know about the importance of sport and activity for our girls. There's some stark numbers there that, as you say, are worrying, but also from a point of view of lots listening in terms of physical therapy and physiotherapy, that actually having a role to play to encourage that participation and open will break down some of those barriers that might be in their way. Well, exactly. And I feel like part of this, I mean, I have the researcher hat on, but also as a clinician, as you say, but also in the sport and exercise medicine field, I would like to think that we're called to advocate for patients and clients as well whenever we can, and also for society at large to be able to promote physical activity in sport. And so we want to keep our kids in sport, of course. And once they're in sport, thinking about enhancing growth, maturation, making sure that they're positive aspects to sport as well for the female athlete and for boys as well. But we need to be considering also things like safe sport and making sure that mental health is adequate as well. Of course, that took a plunge as well during the pandemic, but just making sure that they feel that it's a safe space when we're caring for them, when they're providing healthcare for our young girls, promoting safe and enjoyable physical activity and sport will go a long way toward developing mature athletes who thrive in sport as well. It's a big role for us all to play. So moving forward, and I think we've already touched on this and you've already touched on this heavily already, but the gaps in the research, because there clearly are some. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that and hopefully pick some ideas up out there for other researchers out there in terms of where these gaps are. There's a few of them. So I think one of the main things is that, again, touching on the fact that it's not just sex considerations. So thinking about biological sex, but thinking about gender considerations as well. So there have been really good papers that in terms of looking at the gendered sport environment and how that may play into injury and illness risk. But even looking at the ACL, as we've mentioned that before, but in terms of thinking about treatment or rehab or even prehabilitation, do female athletes feel comfortable in a gym environment, for example? And do they have the same type of resources available for them from a sports medicine team perspective? And not trying to just tell women just get stronger when they may not have that same kind of access or comfort in getting to gyms or for doing resistance training programs or things like that. So there is that aspect of the gendered sport environment or even the safety of going for a run in the dark or in a strange neighborhood. Other considerations where we may feel it's not just enough to say this is how you need to rehab or this is what you need to do for exercise, but also considering there's probably other factors involved that are more from that gendered lens versus strict biological sex differences as well. I've mentioned it, but the gap in data is a huge one. I mean, when we look at cardiovascular health, I study retired athletes as well, and we look at long-term endurance athletes and cardiovascular health. There was a recent meta-analysis that looked over 165,000 elite endurance athletes, but over 84% of them were male. And it was enough to conclude for the authors that to look at cardiovascular and cancer mortality outcomes in these long-time endurance athletes, but they concluded that there wasn't enough data available to 
conclude anything about mortality or outcomes in female athletes. And so it's just an example of we look at the data and we found that it's wanting in the sense that we can't counsel our female athletes, our active women on long-term health outcomes when there's no data available. That's similar for things like injury risk as well. If we're not studying it or we don't have enough numbers, then we can't counsel appropriately. Or we may be counseling inappropriately because we're assuming the same thing will be the case for men and women. So that's where more of the data that can come out that we could all benefit from. Again, looking at things across the lifespan as well, we touched on adult athletes, so established menstrual cycles. There's a lot of data, a lot of research coming out, which is fantastic on relative energy deficiency in sport. And it's, I'm sure it's enough for its own podcast, but essentially thinking about other things about long-term effects on fertility. What are outcomes if menstrual cycles are disturbed during an athlete's career on injury risk? We know bone health to some degree in terms of short and long-term effects. And so if people have suppressed menstrual cycles for many months or years, which we've seen in clinic, I'm sure a lot of physiotherapists have as well, that could play into short-term things like stress fractures or stress reactions, but all the way up to osteoporosis in 20 or 30-year-old women. And a lot of that can be irreversible if we don't take care of it promptly and try to resume menses and nutritional or adequate energy intake. But we don't know a lot of long-term effects on fertility and on all the other immune function, things like that, when REDS is managed appropriately. And as well, just even thinking about very quickly, two other research gaps that I would mention is, is one is that pregnancy and postpartum. We don't do randomized controlled trials on pregnant women, and for many good reasons. And we're not really gathering good anecdotal evidence or even case series or a lot of data. We're starting to look at qualitative and we're starting to get more quantitative data, but really understanding that pregnant women can be athletes as well. They can still perform before and after pregnancy, trying to ensure that they're supported enough. Absolutely. Jane, brilliant. Thank you so much for today. How can listeners find out a bit more about you? Certainly. For those that are still on Twitter these days, I do have a Twitter account at Jane S. Thornton. We do have a lab website that details all of our projects and a lot of what we talked about today in terms of research and graphics and so on. And that's return to health and performance.org. Wonderful. Jane, thank you so much. And for our listeners out there, I'm sure you are finding these podcasts interesting. We welcome your subscription and sharing the podcast so they reach more ears across the world. Jane, thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Thank you.